We, we pride ourselves on teacher-to-student ratios here on Labor Day weekend. Um, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That passage is also printed for you in the bulletin. This is a passage about boasting. Uh, what is it that you're most prone to boast about? I want you to have that sort of in the back of your mind as we read this passage this morning. This is 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I wished to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. God, we need to hear from you this morning. God, we, uh, some of us feel our weakness acutely right now and this morning. Um, Some of us feel the thorn in our flesh acutely because of what we're going through in life right now. And others may not. And so, Spirit, we trust you to, to show yourself to us, to help us know more of you this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, would you mind grabbing that door over there? Thanks. Um, Okay, so we are really drawn to vulnerability when we see it in other people and we hear from it in other people. When when people share about their weaknesses, um, we are drawn to it. We feel connected. We like it. And we're actually put off uh, by other people when they present themselves as sort of having it all together or, or just you know, boasting about how great they are. So um, we're drawn to vulnerability. Uh, think about this. Brene Brown makes a point that when, when one person is vulnerable with another person, it creates what she calls a me too moment. Uh, when one person shares a story about being weak or struggling with something, rather than being rejected by the person they're sharing with, the response is often, oh, really? Me too. And so there's this uh, vulnerability that leads to greater connection. Uh, a great example of this is in the book How to Stay Married by an author named Harrison Scott Key. How to Stay Married is a very, very, very intense first-hand account of a very difficult marriage uh, where this couple is battling to stay married. And it is full of vulnerability. Uh, one chapter, Harrison, who's the author and the husband of this marriage, he, he dedicates the whole chapter uh, using a, the ABCs as an acrostic to give 26 reasons why he was difficult to be married to. Uh, here's a sample. So for the letter B, he uses the word brag. He says, I brag. 
once boasting so proudly to Lauren, his wife, about the moral superiority of, my own, of owning a flip phone that she assaulted me with a Yankee candle. As for B, for the letter G, he uses the word gifts. He says, I'm terrible at receiving gifts. I cannot hide my disappointment. One birthday, Lauren presented me with a new porch swing. I sat down, determined that the angle was all wrong, stood up and asked her to return it. What is wrong with me, he says. Uh, For the letter K, he uses the word know, K-N-O-W. He says, there are many things I don't know and really should, like what medicines my children take, what diseases they may or may not have, what their teachers' names are, and how much school uniforms cost. Uh, But he just goes on throughout this whole chapter to talk about, here's 26 reasons why I was really difficult to be married to. Um, And this book is incredibly vulnerable. And you just can't help when you read it but connect to different parts of their story and different parts of their marriage dynamic. Why? Because they're not talking about how great they are. They're talking about how much they've struggled. We connect to vulnerability. Contrast that to when you hear from people who it kind of seems like they just have it all together and they're strong and right and they never make a mistake. Maybe an extreme example of this would be like during a highly public political uh, campaign that's happening and you, the political commercials, the debates, where um, it seems like candidates spend all their time just convincing everyone how great they are and how that they've never really made a mistake, that what you thought was a mistake was not actually a mistake, but they're really great. And, they, and in addition to speaking highly of themselves, they just tear down others. And they're trying to convince us that the, their opponent is just the worst thing ever. And, you know, we hear this, and it's just kind of part of how politics seems to work, but it can just be such a turnoff. It's so uh, off-putting. Uh, and we don't feel connected because it doesn't feel real. Um, it actually, and when there's those dynamics in a relationship, it ends up being a real roadblock to connection and to deep friendship. But we're drawn to people being open about their weaknesses, yet it's so hard for us to do that ourselves. Why? Our shame can totally silence us. Our shame prevents us from wanting to talk about our weaknesses. We're sometimes terrified to put words to our struggles and to actually feel weak. Um, Sometimes we're just ashamed about the ways that we don't measure up and and we just don't want to put words to it. Um, It's been said that our greatest desire is uh, to um, be fully known and fully loved. Greatest desire to be fully known and fully loved. Yet we're afraid that if we're fully known we're going to be rejected. So we don't open up. So we boast about our strengths, not our weaknesses. Paul is going to show us the opposite this morning. Two headings this morning as we think about this passage. Uh, The first thing I want us to see is how not to boast. And secondly, how to boast. So first, how not to boast. Okay, so in Corinth, there were these false teachers, opponents of Paul, who were actually boasting in their spiritual experiences and their ethnic identity, uh, sort of pointing to their really impressive resumes as being the things that make them worthy, the the reason that you should listen to them, look at their resume. Um, And just like those false teachers, we do the exact same thing. Um, The message of the Bible is that your salvation is not based on you getting it right, on you being a good person. It's based on what Jesus has done for you. It's by grace, not by works. That's a core belief of the Bible. Um, We say that in some form every time that we get together. Yet part of what our sin does to us is to twist that and convince us that we need to perform in order to get God to approve of us. Because this is how the rest of life works. Uh, We're convinced that our being good and our doing good is at least part of the equation for how we can get right with God. Um, This is what Paul's opponents were doing in Corinth. This is what the false teachers were doing. 
um, so naturally were boasting about their spiritual lives, their resumes, saying, see, see we kind of, we figured it out, we're doing it. And while they boasted about themselves, they were attacking Paul, saying, look, you've had so much suffering, so much has gone wrong for you that clearly you're not a real apostle. There's something wrong, you're not the real deal. And so what does Paul do? He kind of plays their game. What does he boast about? Let's, let's look at this. We'll call this uh, Paul's bad reason to boast. His bad reason to boast. Uh, Paul says, okay, let, let's, let's go there. And he starts talking about himself in the third person here. And he recounts this vision that he had 14 years ago. What's the vision? He says, whether it was in the spirit or in the body, I don't know. Only God knows. God gave him this vision where he's in paradise. It's the place where God dwells. He heard things from God that he can't even tell us. That this, there was just this amazing spiritual experience where he encountered God in a way that maybe no one else has. And that's kind of all we get. And it sounds amazing, but he's, he's incredibly vague. But we hear enough to know that this was some kind of like ultimate spiritual experience that he, have, that he had. Um, I have the terrible habit of one-upping people. If I've ever one-upped you in a conversation, I'm sorry. I do this without realizing it. Um, you know what this is. It's when someone shares something cool or interesting and then someone, rather than just listening and hearing it, says, tries to share something that's even more cool or more interesting. Um, a very odd place where I've noticed myself one-upping others in conversation is around the subject of rodents that you found in your house. Uh, it's such a weird thing to sort of try to one-up someone about. Um, but I, I find myself boasting about how many unwanted animals I have encountered in my house. And maybe it's not one-upping. Maybe it's just a really funny thing to talk about. Uh, for instance, um, we had some work done on a wall in our den this past week. And when the workers opened up the wall, they found, found um, ten... Ten, ten dead rats behind one wall this past week. And I don't really know what to do with that. I don't know if I should sleep better at night now that they, the ten rats are gone or that I should not be sleeping at night because I had ten rats in my house. Um, but for me, this is, all right, what, how's that function? It's new material. A new fodder that I can use to kind of one-up someone whenever, whenever you're talking about your rodents. So bring your rodent story. But do you see how Paul one-ups his opponents? Here he's, he's, he's boasting about his own spiritual experience. He's like, okay, if this, if this is how you're going to do it, I'll go there. I'm going to one-up you and you're boasting about your spiritual experiences. And he says, actually, like if we were really boasting, I could do this truthfully because I had this, this incredible experience. He says it wouldn't be totally foolish if I tried to, to play that game you're playing. But those were his bad reasons to boast. What are our bad reasons to boast? We've got bad reasons to boast. What kind of things do we boast about? A lot of times it's not just outright bragging or boasting. It's veiled, humble brags. It's the story behind the story of a social media post. Maybe it's something that gets shared after a couple drinks or only in company that you're really, really comfortable with. Here are some categories as I thought about this in my own life where I'm tempted to boast. Um, we can boast about how real we are. We boast about how real we are. Um, rather than just being vulnerable or being real or being authentic with others, we make uh, vulnerability like a point of pride and boasting where it almost becomes like a vulnerability righteousness. And, and our, our realness kind of becomes like our badge of honor, the thing that we're going to uh, kind of stake our claim in and boast about. So we can boast about how real we are. We can boast about how right we are. 
Uh, it might be like theological rightness. It might just be always having to be right in everything all the time. It might be like a read on a situation or an opinion about something. Uh, sometimes um, if this is us, it can kind of come across as being really judgmental of others when they're wrong, with, even with the tone of anger. I remember um, a while ago I, in a podcast, I heard someone refer to the idea of anger fantasies. Anger fantasies. It's when you're just inside your mind, you're just kind of, it's almost like you jump into a courtroom inside your mind and you are just um, kind of going after someone. You're like living out this fantasy of just telling someone off or just telling them like it is. And you're, you're just unloading this anger, but it's all happening internally. It's like this anger fantasy. Um, that could be a sign that, that, that we are tempted to boast in how right we are. Because it's not just how right we are, but it's how wrong others are. So how real we are, how right we are, we boast about how committed we are. Um, we're the ones who show up. We're the ones who work hard. We're the ones who are dedicated. All of these, uh, whether it's how real we are, how right we are, how committed we are, it's always with respect to others. It's always about comparison. Um, C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christi Christianity, he said this about pride. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. That's us when we boast. It's our pride showing itself, pride of making the case that in some way we're better than others in a particular area. But what does our boasting really reveal about us? Um, it shows us that we, we still haven't really grasped the grace of Jesus. Uh, that we're still convinced deep down that we need someone, that we need something uh, uh, of our own to stand on as we come to God. Um, so, so for me, when I'm in sort of the subtle, um, humble brag mode, I need someone who can see right through that. And who can grab me by the shoulders and say, hey, 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 hey. Hey, it's okay. Hey, you're loved. You're loved. You don't have to do this. You, you don't have to try to build your resume. You don't have to try to stand on this thing. You don't have to boast about this thing. You're loved. Jesus sees you and he loves you. You're okay. I need someone to break through and help me really believe that this grace really covers me in those moments. But we boast in our strengths. And when we're doing that, we're finding our identity in something other than Jesus. That's how not to boast. Um, but because the world is really messed up because of sin, because we're really messed up because of our sin, this is our default way to boast about stuff we've done, to make it about us. How should we boast? Second heading, how to boast. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, on behalf of this man I will boast. boast. He's referring back to himself again in the third person. He says, um, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. So he says that we're to boast in our weaknesses. And we actually get a picture of what Paul's weakness was. Let's look at this first, the source of his weakness. What was the source of Paul's weakness? It was this thorn. This thorn. Look at verse 7. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Uh, what was this thorn in the flesh? Probably not an actual thorn. Some think it was uh, psychological struggles that Paul dealt with. Some think it was his opponents, these false teachers in Corinth. 
Um, some think it was demonic harassment, like demons, spiritual demons coming after him. Others think it was like a physical affliction he dealt with. We don't actually know. But note the obvious. He did not like the thorn in his flesh. He asked God three times to remove it, and God did not. Um, where did the thorn come from? Um, he compares the thorn itself to a messenger of Satan that was sent to harass him. To harass him. Uh, based on the, his later conversation with God, God was the one who had the power to remove it, but he chose not to. So God allowed this thorn to remain for Paul. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God allow a hard thing to enter the life of his servant? That's a big question for us to wrestle through. Whatever your beliefs are here this morning, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not a Christian or maybe sort of new to the faith, that's a, that's a huge question. If God is really good and powerful, why doesn't he remove uh, this thorn? Why doesn't he remove the thorns from our lives? Why does he allow suffering and setbacks to enter our lives? Um, Paul was given an answer to this question. We don't always know the answer to that, but God told Paul why. And we can learn something from this. So that's the source of the weakness, this thorn. What's the reason for the weakness? Paul tells us twice the why of the thorn. Verse 7, it's to keep me from becoming conceited. That's the reason why. Paul was kind of a celebrity. Uh, very smart, very capable. Prior to his conversion, he, he was known for being a, uh, just a persecutor of all those who followed Jesus. He had this big reputation um, and it seems like if you read Paul's letters in the New Testament that he was the type of guy that when he entered a room, you noticed. He had a, a way about him, a presence about him. And then he had this big dramatic conversion experience. And then God gave him this enormous ministry role. And then he would be central in like writing most of the New Testament. Um, to top it off, then he has this amazing vision that God gives him. This spiritual experience unlike anyone else had experienced um, our hearts are so prone to boasting, so prone to pride, so prone to sort of filling up our resumes that surely Paul's background would have led him to really think he was something, to becoming conceited. Um, you could translate that word conceited as exalting yourself or lifting yourself up. It's sort of like an aren't I so great kind of way of thinking. It's, uh, the, think of the potential humble brag that Paul was capable of based on his story and this vision that the Lord had, had given him. It was a very special thing that he experienced. But what does God do? God says, um, I'm going to allow this low-grade, annoying, ongoing suffering to be a weakness to you. An actual limit on how you feel, an actual limit on what you're capable of doing so that you don't get conceited. Why? Because God loves Paul and is at work in Paul's life, making, into, making him into something more beautiful than he could imagine. Um, Paul brings, God brings a thorn into Paul's life because he loves Paul. Um, God brings thorns into our lives because he loves us. Um, we have the weaknesses and struggles that we have because God loves us. And he's even using those hard things to make us more beautiful. And that sounds great. We believe it. Great. Okay, but we still don't like the thorns. Uh, we like the idea of being humbled. We may even ask God to humble us. But we don't really like the ways in which he humbles us. And maybe that's part of the point that it's not what we would choose. Um, I remember a friend uh, years ago telling me about his struggle with 
uh, pornography and sexual addiction. And he said to me, he said, I just wish I had a different struggle. He said, one that didn't make me feel so ashamed or that wasn't so hard to talk about. Um, We don't get to choose our thorns. That's God's business. Um, But we know that our thorns will be unpleasant and that they're going to limit what we're able to do in this life, what we're able to be in this life. They're going to hold us back even from doing what we think God would have us to do to serve him. But the hope behind the thorns is that God has good reasons behind them. Um, it's good to be humble. It's good to not be conceited as in Paul's situation. So in this very um, kingdom of God, upside down way, our weaknesses, our thorns, are actually a gift to us. So that's the last thing about the weakness. Let's talk about the gifts of the weakness. Paul says he asked God three times to remove the thorn, but God doesn't. Uh, And then he gets into the good that comes from this particular weakness for Paul. That's actually a gift. And the first gift is this. The first gift is a deeper experience of God's grace. Look at verse 9. This is God to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Here's the gift. More grace. It's almost a tangible way to to feel God's grace fill up what is lacking in us. Um, It's the experience of, of grace to live out the reality that God actually does use weak people to do amazing things. Um, at the beginning of Paul's uh, first letter to the Corinthians, he tells the, Corinthians, the Corinthian believers this very thing. Listen to what he says to them. He's, this is quite the compliment. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to your worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And in verse 29 of that passage, he gets to the why. Why? So that no human being would boast in the presence of God. He's essentially telling them, hey, you guys uh, weren't so great by earthly standards. But God is using you to do amazing things. Why? Because it gives God all the glory and allows you to experience his unmerited grace. I want you just to think about your life. Uh, Think about if if you're here and you're a, a believer and you've been a believer for some time. Think about... Areas of your life in which you really grew in the Lord. In which you were really kind of looking back and growing in your faith. Um, maybe you had like a really strong prayer life in this season. And you felt a deep connection to God. You felt really needy for Him. Um, and you kind of loved it. You were, you were reading the Bible and you were just kind of eating it up. You couldn't get enough of it. Maybe aside from when you first came to know the Lord. I bet that season you experienced um, that kind of, kind of growth was not when things were going well for you. Um, probably not when your marriage felt really strong. Probably not when your job was just going great, when your finances were just surprisingly awesome, when your family was really healthy, when friendships were thriving and your network was all connected and great. Um, those are all great things, and we don't need to be ashamed when life is good. We can thank God when life is good, but it is really easy to, to grow cold to, towards God during good seasons in our lives. Because we don't feel like we need him anymore. We have the things we want. So we lose that feeling of need in him. Um, One of the gifts of facing our weakness, the thorns in our flesh, honestly, is that we get a deeper experience of God's grace. Another opportunity to need him. To be near to him. To be intimate with him. To cry out to him. For things to be less about us and our achievements and to be more about God. 
a deeper experience of God's grace, even when it means our personal weakness. That's a gift. That's the first gift. Second gift that we see is a deeper experience of God's power. Look at verse 9. It says, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Verse 10, Paul says, says that the power of Christ may rest on me. At the end of verse 10, he says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, sometimes the Bible comes across as just beautifully upside down and totally countercultural, opposite of what our own reasoning would say, what our own logic would say, opposite of what the world around us would say. It's just beautifully upside down sometimes. God's power is made perfect in your weakness. When you are weak, Christ's power rests on you. When you are weak, then you are strong. Try to get your head around that. All of this keeps building up to the point where Paul has gone from asking from, for God to remove this thorn, this weakness, and instead in verse 9 he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Verse 10, look at what it says. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. You see this transformation that's taking place in Paul? He's not boasting anymore about his resume like the opponents were doing. Um, he's no longer asking God to remove this thorn. But he's boasting in his weaknesses and he's content. He's content. Not just with his weaknesses, but with all the brokenness, all the suffering that comes his way. Insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Why? Because the less it's about him, the more it will be about God. Um, in this very upside down way, the weaker that Paul is in life, the stronger he is in God. Our weakness is actually our strength. And you see this all throughout the Bible. Philippians 2, our call to worship this morning, says that Jesus' humiliation led to his exaltation. Paul will say in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians that Jesus was crucified in weakness. Um, Jesus has gone before us in this path of weakness, a path of humiliation. He wasn't power hungry. He wasn't self-promoting. He wasn't insecure in who he was, constantly puffing himself up. His strength was his weakness and his humility. Um, Paul is showing a very different way of salvation in this passage. Do you see it? Do you see that salvation is found in our weakness and not in our strength? It's found in our failure to perform rather than in our performing. We bring nothing to the table except our failure and weakness when it comes to our salvation. And Jesus meets us with his righteousness and gives it to us by faith. Uh, the only way that you can be saved is if you come to God in your weakness and you own it before Him. If you rely on your strengths, on your gifts, on your spiritual resume, uh, you won't be saved because you're choosing to be evaluated based on your resume rather than Jesus' resume. And so the question for us to think about today is, are, are you able to, to own your weakness in this ultimate sort of way? To really say before God, I can't do this. I need help from outside of myself. Do you believe that God's grace is sufficient for you in your weakness, in your failure, in your not-enoughness? Because this is what God is telling you this morning, that His grace is sufficient. Do you believe that? Uh, this is what it means to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Being a Christian is not like a, a ramp-up phase of life where we're doing just more and more and more good Christian stuff to make our lives look really spiritual, kind of build out our spiritual resumes. Um, the way to becoming a Christian is simply to own the fact that you do not have what it takes. 
And it's all about Jesus' grace and mercy to you, not because of anything that you bring to the table. Uh, We'll end with a story that Jesus told about this very thing. Um, He told this story to people who were boasting about their own strengths. This is what he said. He said, two men went up uh, into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautifully upside-down way of Jesus, the beautifully upside-down way of your word. Um, God, we humble ourselves before you. And, and we pray with some trepidation that you would humble us. Um, God, all of us are facing different thorns, different weaknesses, insults, persecutions, calamities. Some of these feel life-altering or maybe even life-ending, almost unbearable. And some of these just are, are incredibly annoying and feel incredibly limiting on, on who we think we could be or what we might be able to become. But ultimately, we thank you for everything that you bring our way. Trusting that you're at work. Trusting that there, there are um, good reasons for our weaknesses. Uh, that there are gifts in our weaknesses, that we can experience your grace on a deeper level and your power on a deeper level. So, Father, in whatever we're facing this morning, would you meet us in our weakness? For when we are weak, then we are strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take just a moment, and uh, you can jot down a note or two or just pray silently as we just kind of reflect on what we have heard from God and his word and prepare to meet him at the table. Let's do that now. Uh, The table that you see set before you this morning is a table that reminds us of the weakness and humility of Jesus that led him to death. And there was good reason behind his death. He died for you and for me. And this is where we come to uh, to remember that good news. And we remember that in him we actually become victorious. That he becomes our strength as he walked out of the grave, resurrected on our behalf. When we believe in Him, we are made strong in Him. If you feel weak this morning, 
Come and partake of this meal. Be strengthened by this meal. Let this be a tangible way in which um, you are strong in your weakness where Christ's power rests on you in your weakness today. Uh, so if you've given your life to Christ, you've been, you've been baptized and you're connected to a church that proclaims this good news, and come and be strengthened today. Come and own your weakness honestly at this table. Uh, but if that does not describe you, maybe hold off on partaking of this meal and, and instead consider these very um, upside-down claims of Jesus. And I would love to talk with you after the service about what it would look like for you to begin following him and to believe in him. Uh, the way that we do this is um, after our musicians are served, you can come forward and take this like a family meal. Uh, there's bread up here. There's also allergy-free crackers. You can grab one of those if you prefer. There is wine and juice. The wine is red. The juice is white. We partake of this meal up here around the table. You can put it um, in the, the empty cup in the basket when you're done. There'll be a communion song that we'll sing out as we partake. You can pray. Do as you feel led during this time of meeting the Lord at the table. All right, with this in mind, let's remember these words of institution together. Let us together proclaim the hope of the church. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ shall come again. I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, 